Hi, everyone. This is Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Before we get started with this episode of the podcast, I just want to tell you about a new project I'm developing called MedPrep to Go. The idea here is to create a free online and audio USMLE question bank for both Step 1 and Step 2, with the overall goal of reducing the cost of medical education and giving you time back in your day, just like we're doing with this podcast. It's still early in the process, and we're adding a lot of questions and new episodes of the podcast regularly, but I'd love to have you go check it out at medpreptogo.com. And if you're interested in getting involved in developing questions for this question bank and getting some mentoring directly from me on how to develop questions, I'd love to have you involved. You can email me at ted.medpreptogo at gmail.com or you can go over to medpreptogo.com and sign up through the website. So thanks so much for uh, listening and enjoy the podcast. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Here's our question dissection for today. Welcome to the Step 2 Secrets podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, host of the Inside the Boards podcast. You can check out our main show or... If you like this type of content, please consider checking out our Study Smarter podcast, which is exclusively question breakdowns for the USMLE board exams, shelf exams, and all of medical school, helping you think like a question writer. Before we get into today's chapter of USMLE Step 2 Secrets, we're going to go through a question dissection for this chapter with the author of the book, Dr. Ted O'Connell. And thanks to Elsevier for providing this content. So, Dr. O'Connell, go ahead. Let's get this going. So, in this question, a 29-year-old male tree trimmer suffers serious injuries from a fall at work. On arrival at the emergency room, he is short of breath with a blood pressure of 80 over 65 millimeters of mercury, a heart rate of 130 beats per minute, and a respiratory rate of 28 per minute. Neck veins are distended and heart sounds are distant. Which of the following findings is most characteristic for this patient's diagnosis? Is it A, absent pulsus paradoxus, B, decreased peripheral vascular resistance, C, electrocardiogram showing electrical alternans, D, increased Y descent in early diastole in the venous pulse waveform, or E, PR segment elevation. Oof. Patrick, you want to take us through these answer choices? Oh, so bad. So badly. So as I heard this vignette, I was pretty happy because I was like, oh, I remember this is Bextriad. He's got hypotension, jugular venous distension, and muffled heart sounds. So then coming to the interrogatory, which of the following findings is most characteristic of this patient's diagnosis? That's you know, not exactly what I wanted to see because I have to go another step behind what I get from being able to diagnose this patient. So going through these, I'm going to go with 
see electrical alternans, but I'll be honest, I can't remember why. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. I think the first step in identifying what's going on is to realize that given the patient's constellation of findings, um, these are consistent with cardiac tamponade. And you identified correctly Beck's triad, which again is diminished heart sounds, distended neck veins, and hypotension. And then with cardiac tamponade, you can see alterations of the QRS complexes on an EKG in a two-to-one ratio. And, and that's really a characteristic finding. That is electrical alternans. And that is what uh, this question is really asking you to do to go to that second or third level of knowledge around uh, the topic of cardiac tamponade. Got it. Of the other ones, I would say you know, cardiology is a, a pretty complicated subject, the physiology and, and pathophysiology and all the potential sort of learning points within the field can be a bit overwhelming. And still a lot of the terminology surrounding it is, is not exactly your, you know, everyday language. So as we go through this, I would say for me, I'd eliminate choice D because that was increased wide descent and early diastole in the venous pulse waveform. This is sort of like an unfamiliar way of, well, let me put it simply, I don't remember anything about that from med school 10 years ago. As an OBGYN, I don't think I have to know that either. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, you guys do who are listening to this because uh, you're preparing for your exams. So absent pulsus paradoxus, you'd expect to see the tachycardia, elevated jugular venous pressure, and an increased paradoxical pulse, which is a mean drop of 15 millimeters of mercury or more in the systolic blood pressure with inspiration. And that's something you'd, you know, find normally, correct? Yeah, so you see an increase in, in pulsus paradoxus with cardiac tamponade along with the tachycardia and the elevated jugular venous pressure. So not absent, but rather increased, which is what makes that distractor incorrect. Yeah. And I think to me, I would have ruled that one out because I'm used to seeing pulses paradoxes as a, a positive finding in disease states on practice exam questions rather than its absence. I don't know. Do you think that's a kind of sufficient? Yeah, that's a great way to think of that about that. Yeah. So definitely be on the lookout when you go through your distractors. The material presented is an entity you're familiar with and understand if you're going to choose that rather than just terms that you are familiar with and jumping to an answer which may not be correct. That's a great test taking tip, Patrick. All right. Let's get into today's chapter of Step 2 Secrets. This is Ted O'Connell, and this is the cardiology chapter of USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th edition. Question 1. When Step 2 describes a patient with chest pain, what do you do? Make sure that the chest pain is not due to a life-threatening condition. Usually, you must try to make sure that the patient has not had a heart attack. Number 2. What elements of the history and physical exam steer you away from a diagnosis of myocardial infarction? Wrong age. A patient under the age of 40 is very unlikely to have an MI without known heart disease, strong family history, or multiple risk factors for coronary artery disease. A lack of risk factors. 
a 60-year-old marathon runner who eats well and has a high level of high-density lipoprotein and no cardiac risk factors other than age is unlikely to have a heart attack. Physical characteristics of the pain. If the pain is reproducible by palpation, it's from the chest wall, not the heart. The pain associated with an MI is usually not sharp or well-localized. The pain should not be related to certain foods or eating. Many physicians still want to make sure that a heart attack has not occurred by obtaining an EKG and possibly one or more sets of cardiac enzyme levels. For the step two exam, however, the clues mentioned above should steer you toward an alternative diagnosis. Number three, what findings on EKG should make you suspect an MI? Flipped or flattened T waves, ST segment elevation, depression means ischemia, elevation means injury, and or Q waves in a segmental distribution. For examples, leads 2, 3, and AVF for an inferior infarct suggest a heart attack has occurred. Number four, describe the classic pattern of MI chest pain. The pain is classically described as a crushing or pressure sensation. It is a poorly localized substernal pain that may radiate to the shoulder, arm, or jaw. The pain is usually not reproducible on palpation and in patients with a heart attack often does not resolve with nitroglycerin as it often does in angina. The pain usually lasts at least half an hour. Number five, what tests are used to diagnose an MI? Other than an EKG, troponin levels are drawn usually drawn every eight hours three times before a heart attack is ruled out. Troponin levels stay elevated for more than 24 hours. Radiographs may show cardiomegaly and or pulmonary congestion. Echocardiography may show ventricular wall motion abnormalities. Number six, describe the classic physical findings in a patient with an MI. Patients are often diaphoretic, anxious, tachycardic, tachypnic, and pale. They may have nausea and vomiting. Large heart attacks can cause heart failure. Look for bilateral pulmonary rales in the absence of other pneumonia-like symptoms, as well as distended neck veins, a new S3 or S4 heart sound, new murmurs, hypotension, and or shock. Number seven, what historical points should steer you toward a diagnosis of MI? Patients often have a history of angina or previous chest pain, murmurs, arrhythmias, risk factors for coronary artery disease, hypertension, or diabetes. They may also be taking digoxin, furosemide, cholesterol medications, antihypertensives, or other cardiac medications. Number eight, describe the treatment for an MI. Treatment involves admission to the intensive or cardiac care unit. Several basic principles should be kept in mind. Number one, early reperfusion is indicated if the time from onset of symptoms is less than 12 hours, and choice of reperfusion therapy is determined by patient and medical center criteria. Early reperfusion, fewer than four to six hours, is preferred to try to salvage myocardium. Reperfusion may be accomplished by a fibrinolysis or percutaneous coronary intervention, that is, balloon angioplasty and stent. Coronary artery bypass grafting may be required. Number two, EKG monitoring is essential. If ventricular tachycardia occurs, use amiodarone. Number three, give oxygen by nasal cannula and maintain an oxygen saturation greater than 90%. Number four, 
Control pain with morphine, which may improve pulmonary edema if it's present. Number five, administer aspirin. Number six, administer nitroglycerin. Number seven, beta blockers, which patients without contraindication should take for life, reduce the mortality rate of MI as well as the incidence of a second heart attack. Number eight, administer clopidogrel. Number nine, administer unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin. Number 10, an angiotensin-converting enzyme, ACE inhibitor, or an angiotensin receptor blocker, an ARB, should be administered within 24 hours. Number 11, administer a statin. Question 9, true or false? With good management, patients with an MI will not die in the hospital. False. Even with the best medical management, patients may die from an MI. They may also have a second heart attack during the hospitalization, so watch for sudden deterioration. Number 10. When is heparin indicated in the setting of chest pain and MI? For unstable angina, a cardiac thrombus, or if severe congestive heart failure is seen on echocardiogram. Step 2 will not ask about other indications, which are not as clear-cut. Do not give heparin to patients with contraindications to its use, such as active bleeding. Number 11. What clues suggest the common non-cardiac causes of chest pain? For gastroesophageal reflux and peptic ulcer disease, look for a relation to certain foods, such as spicy foods and chocolate, as well as smoking, caffeine, or lying down. Pain is relieved by antacids or acid-reducing medications. Patients with peptic ulcer disease often test positive for helicobacter pylori. For chest wall pain, such as costochondritis or broken ribs, the pain is well localized and reproducible on chest wall palpation. For esophageal problems, such as achalasia, nutcracker esophagus, or esophageal spasm, this is often a difficult differential. The question will probably give a negative workup for MI or mention the lack of atherosclerosis risk factors. Look for abnormalities with barium swallow or esophageal manometry. Achalasia is treated with pneumatic dilatation or botulism toxin administration. And treat nutcracker esophagus or esophageal spasm with calcium channel blockers. If medical treatments are ineffective, surgical myotomy may be needed. For pericarditis, look for a viral upper respiratory infection, prodrome. The EKG shows diffuse ST segment elevation. The erythrocyte sedimentation rate is elevated, and a low-grade fever is present. Classically, the pain is relieved by sitting forward. The most common cause is infection with Coxsackie virus. Other causes include tuberculosis, uremia, malignancy, and lupus or other autoimmune diseases. For pneumonia, the chest pain is due to pleuritis. Patients also have cough, fever, and or sputum production. Ask about possible sick contacts. For aortic dissection, this is associated with severe tearing or ripping pain that may radiate to the back. Look for hypertension or evidence of Marfan syndrome, such as a tall, thin patient with hyperextensible joints. Blunt chest trauma can cause aortic laceration and pseudoaneurysm, which are different conditions that are often managed similarly. Number 12, how can you recognize stable angina? The chest pain of stable angina begins with exertion or stress, is reproduced predictably at the same level of exertion, and remits with rest or calming down. 
The pain is described as a pressure or squeezing pain in the substernal area and may radiate to the shoulders, neck, and or jaw. It is often accompanied by shortness of breath, diaphoresis, and or nausea. The pain is usually relieved by nitroglycerin. An EKG done during an acute attack often shows ST-segment depression, but in the absence of pain, the EKG is often normal. The pain should last less than 20 minutes or be relieved after a sublingual nitroglycerin. Otherwise, there may be progression to unstable angina or MI. Question 13. Describe unstable angina. How is it diagnosed and treated? Unstable angina is defined as a change from previously stable angina and often begins at rest. If a patient used to experience angina once a week and now experiences it once a day, the patient technically has unstable angina. Unstable angina usually presents with normal or only minimally elevated cardiac enzymes, EKG changes such as ST depression, and prolonged chest pain that does not respond to nitroglycerin initially, like a heart attack. Treatment is similar to that for MI. The patient is admitted to the coronary or intensive care unit. Initial treatment begins with oxygen, aspirin, and nitroglycerin. The patient should be given a beta blocker, clopidogrel, heparin, and a glycoprotein 2B3A receptor inhibitor. An ACE inhibitor, or ARB, should be given as well. Consider emergent PTCA if the pain does not resolve. Almost all patients have a history of stable angina and coronary artery disease risk factors. Number 14. Describe variant Prinzmetal angina. This rare type of angina is characterized by pain at rest, unrelated to exertion, and often occurs in the middle of the night or early morning and presents with ST-segment elevation. Cardiac enzymes are normal. The cause is coronary artery spasm. Prinzmetal angina usually responds to nitroglycerin and it is treated over the long term with calcium channel blockers, which reduce arterial spasm. Number 15. Describe silent MI. How common is it? Patients with a silent MI do not develop chest pain. They present with congestive heart failure, shock, or confusion and delirium, especially elderly patients. MIs are silent in up to 25% of cases, especially in diabetics with neuropathy. Number 16. Describe the etiology and classic history of the various heart valve abnormalities. Mitral stenosis. The etiology. Rheumatic fever is the most common cause. History includes dyspnea, orthopnea, and paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. For mitral regurgitation, the etiology is it typically results from rheumatic fever or chordae tendinae rupture after an MI. And in the history, look for fatigue, dyspnea, and orthopnea. Aortic stenosis is typically seen in the elderly. Bicuspid or unicuspid valves may present with symptoms in childhood. And for history, it's usually asymptomatic for years and begins with dyspnea on exertion. It progresses to angina, syncope, and heart failure, with the mortality rate increasing through this progression. For aortic regurgitation, you can use the CREAM mnemonic. CR is for congenital rheumatic damage, E for endocarditis, A for aortic dissection and aortic root dilatation, and M for Marfan syndrome. And for history, it can present acutely with severe dyspnea, acute pulmonary congestion, and cardiogenic shock. 
It can also present chronically with dyspnea on exertion, orthopnea, and paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. Number 17. What physical exam findings are associated with the various heart valve abnormalities? For mitral stenosis, this is a late diastolic blowing murmur, best heard at the apex, and can also have an opening snap, a loud S1, be associated with atrial fibrillation, left atrial enlargement, and pulmonary hypertension. For mitral regurgitation, it has a holosystolic murmur that radiates to the axilla. Other findings include a soft S1, left atrial enlargement, pulmonary hypertension, and left ventricular hypertrophy. Aortic stenosis is a harsh systolic ejection murmur, best heard in the aortic area, and it radiates to the carotids. Other findings include a slow pulse upstroke, an S3 and S4, ejection click, left ventricular hypertrophy, cardiomegaly, syncope, angina, and heart failure. For aortic regurgitation, this is an early diastolic decrescendo murmur best heard at the apex. Other findings include widened pulse pressure, left ventricular hypertrophy, left ventricular dilatation, and an S3. For mitral prolapse, it's a mid-systolic click, late systolic murmur. Other findings include the possibility of panic disorder. Question 18. Describe the treatment for each of the aforementioned valvular disorders. Mitral stenosis is a mechanical problem that requires balloon valvotomy or surgery if it becomes severe. Medical management with diuretics, digoxin, and beta blockers are only adjunctive to either percutaneous or surgical intervention. Mitral regurgitation is treated with corrective surgery if certain indications are present, such as flail leaflet or severe regurgitation. Vasodilators such as nitroprusside and hydralazine may be used in symptomatic patients. Atrial fibrillation is common because of left atrial enlargement and is treated with rate control and anticoagulation as appropriate. Aortic valve replacement should be performed in essentially all patients with symptomatic aortic stenosis. Aortic valve replacement or repair is indicated in symptomatic patients with chronic aortic regurgitation. Aortic valve replacement or repair may be indicated for asymptomatic patients under certain conditions, such as progressive left ventricular enlargement, along with specific echocardiographic findings that are beyond the scope of the USMLE. Vasodilators may be used to reduce the hemodynamic burden and possibly delay the need for surgery in asymptomatic patients. Number 19. True or false? An understanding of the pathophysiology behind the various changes associated with long-standing valvular heart disease is high yield for the Step 2 exam. True. This is not memorization, but rather the ability to determine rationally which changes are associated with each type of valvular lesion. For example, it is advisable to understand why right heart failure may occur with long-standing mitral stenosis. Number 20. Who should receive endocarditis prophylaxis? American Heart Association recommendations conclude that only an extremely small number of cases of infective endocarditis might be prevented by antibiotic prophylaxis for dental procedures. Antibiotic prophylaxis is no longer recommended for genitourinary or gastrointestinal procedures. Cardiac conditions for which prophylaxis before dental procedures is recommended include prosthetic cardiac valves or prosthetic material used in valve repair, 
previous endocarditis, and congenital heart disease only in the following categories. 1. Unrepaired cyanotic congenital heart disease, including those with palliative shunts and conduits. 2. Completely repaired congenital heart disease with prosthetic material or device, whether placed by surgery or catheter intervention, during the first six months after the procedure. And number 3. Repaired congenital heart disease with residual defects at the site or adjacent to the site of a prosthetic patch or prosthetic device which inhibit endothelialization. And finally, cardiac transplantation recipients with cardiac valvular disease. Question 21. Describe the protocols for endocarditis prophylaxis. An antibiotic for prophylaxis should be administered in a single dose before the procedure. Amoxicillin is the preferred choice for oral therapy. Cephalexin, clindamycin, azithromycin, or clarithromycin may be used in patients with penicillin allergy. Ampicillin, cefazolin, ceftriaxone, or clindamycin may be used for patients unable to take oral medication. Number 22. What is Virchow triad? Virchow's triad consists of three findings associated with DVT endothelial damage, venous stasis, and hypercoagulable state. These three broad categories should help you remember when to think about the possibility of DVT. Number 23. List the common clinical scenarios leading to the development of DVT. Surgery, especially orthopedic, pelvic, abdominal, or neurosurgery. Malignancy, trauma, immobilization, pregnancy, use of birth control pills, disseminated intravascular coagulation, and hypercoagulable states such as factor V Leiden, antithrombin 3 deficiency, protein C or protein S deficiency, prothrombin G2021A gene mutation, hyperhomocystinemia, or antiphospholipid antibodies. Number 24. Describe the physical signs and symptoms of DVT. How is it diagnosed? Signs and symptoms include unilateral leg swelling, pain or tenderness, and or Homan's sign, which is present in 30% of cases. Superficial palpable cords can imply superficial thrombophlebitis rather than DVT. DVT is best diagnosed by Doppler compression ultrasonography or impedance plethysmography of the veins of the extremity. The gold standard is venography, but this invasive test is reserved for situations in which the diagnosis is not clear. Number 25. True or false? Superficial thrombophlebitis is a risk factor for pulmonary embolus. False. Superficial thrombophlebitis, erythema, tenderness, edema, and a palpable clot in a superficial vein affects superficial veins and does not cause pulmonary emboli. It is considered a benign condition, although recurrent superficial thrombophlebitis can be a marker for underlying malignancy. For example, Trousseau syndrome or migratory thrombophlebitis is a classic marker for pancreatic cancer. Treat affected patients with NSAIDs and warm compresses. Number 26. How is DVT treated? For how long? Systemic anticoagulation is necessary. Use intravenous heparin or subcutaneous low molecular weight heparin initially, followed by crossover to oral warfarin. Patients should be maintained on warfarin for at least three to six months and possibly for life if more than one episode of clotting occurs. Number 27. 
What is the best way to prevent DVT in patients undergoing surgery? Prophylactic measures for patients undergoing surgery depend on the risk for developing DVT or pulmonary embolism. Early ambulation is recommended for low-risk patients. Low molecular weight heparin, low-dose unfractionated heparin, or fondaparinux is recommended for patients at moderate risk. High-risk patients should be given low molecular weight heparin, fondaparinux, or an oral vitamin K antagonist. Pneumatic compression stockings should be used instead if the patient is moderate risk or higher and is at high risk of bleeding. Number 28. In what clinical settings does pulmonary embolism, PE, occur? PE commonly follows DVT, delivery from an amniotic fluid embolus, or fractures from fat emboli. The classic patient recently went on a long car ride, took a long airplane flight, or has been immobilized. Symptoms include tachypnea, dyspnea, chest pain, hemoptysis, hypotension, syncope, or death in severe cases. In rare instances, the chest radiograph shows a wedge-shaped defect due to pulmonary infarct, and the EKG shows evidence of right heart strain. Number 29. True or false, DVT can lead to a stroke. False, with one rare exception. Embolization of left-sided heart clots due to atrial fibrillation, ventricular wall aneurysm, severe congestive heart failure, or endocarditis, causes arterial infarcts, resulting in stroke and renal, gastrointestinal, or extremity infarcts, not pulmonary emboli. Deep venous thrombi, or right-sided heart clots, that embolize cause pulmonary emboli, not arterial emboli. The exception is patients with a right-to-left shunt, such as a patent foramen ovale, atrial or septal ventricular septal defect, or pulmonary arteriovenous fistula. In such patients, a venous clot may embolize and cross over to the left side of the circulation, causing an arterial infarct. This event is quite rare. Number 30. How is PE diagnosed? Use a CT pulmonary angiogram or a VQ scan to evaluate for PE. If the test is positive, PE is diagnosed and treatment is started. If the test is indeterminate, a conventional pulmonary angiogram is used to clinch the diagnosis. Conventional pulmonary angiography is a gold standard, but it is invasive and carries substantial risks. If a CT angiogram or VQ scan is negative, it is highly unlikely that the patient has a significant PE. Thus, no treatment is needed. In the setting of a low-probability VQ scan and high clinical suspicion, a CT angiogram or conventional pulmonary angiogram is needed. Number 31. How is PE treated? PE is initially treated with low molecular weight heparin or intravenous unfractionated heparin to prevent further clots and emboli. Then the patient gradually switches to oral warfarin, which must be taken for at least three to six months. In patients with recurrent clots or anticoagulation or contraindications to anticoagulation, an IVC filter should be used. In patients with massive PE, embolectomy or pharmacologic thrombolysis, for example, giving TPA, may be attempted. Number 32. What is the most important side effect of heparin? Heparin can cause two types of thrombocytopenia. The first is a non-immune form that is of no clinical consequence and is characterized by a slight fall in the platelet count during the first two days. The platelet count generally returns to normal with continued heparin administration. 
The second form is less common but more serious and is called type 2 heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT. In this immune-mediated disorder, antibodies are formed against the heparin platelet factor 4 complex. In immune-mediated HIT, platelet count falls more than 50%, typically 5 to 10 days after heparin therapy is initiated. Immune-mediated HIT can lead to both arterial and venous thrombosis. The diagnosis of HIT is made on clinical grounds, but can be confirmed with a functional assay. If HIT is suspected, heparin and low-molecular weight heparin should be discontinued immediately. Measure complete blood counts to monitor platelet counts in patients being treated with heparin. Number 33. How are the effects of aspirin, heparin, and warfarin monitored? Heparin is monitored with the partial thromboplastin time, PTT, a measure of the internal coagulation pathway. Warfarin is monitored with the prothrombin time, or PT, a measure of the external coagulation pathway. Aspirin prolongs the bleeding time, a measure of platelet function. Clinically, the effect of aspirin is not monitored with lab testing, but be aware that it prolongs the bleeding time test. Number 34, how are the effects of low molecular weight heparin monitored? Low molecular weight heparin does not affect any of the coagulation parameters mentioned in the previous question, and its effect is not clinically monitored. Rarely, a special type of factor 10 assay, the anti-10A, is used to measure the effect. Number 35, in an emergency, how can you reverse the effects of heparin, warfarin, and aspirin? Heparin and low molecular weight heparin can be reversed with protamine. Warfarin with fresh frozen plasma, which contains clotting factors and has an immediate effect, and or vitamin K, which takes a few days to work. Aspirin can be reversed with platelet transfusions. Number 36. How do the conditions below affect coagulation tests? Hemophilia A prolongs the PTT. Hemophilia B prolongs the PTT. Von Willebrand factor prolongs the bleeding time and PTT. Disseminated intravascular coagulation prolongs the PT, PTT, and bleeding time. Liver disease prolongs the PT, and vitamin K deficiency prolongs the PT and PTT. There are some additional aids to diagnosis that are worth reviewing, and these are outlined in the book. Remember that uremia causes a qualitative platelet defect and that vitamin C deficiency and chronic corticosteroid therapy can cause bleeding tendency with normal coagulation tests. Number 37. What are the general signs and symptoms of congestive heart failure, or CHF? These include fatigue, ventricular hypertrophy on EKG, dyspnea, an S3 or S4 on cardiac exam, cardiomegaly on chest radiograph, and specific left and right-sided findings, which are reviewed in the next question. Number 38, what signs and symptoms help to determine whether CHF is due to left or right ventricular failure? Signs of left ventricular failure include orthopnea, which is shortness of breath when lying down, and the patient sleeps on more than one pillow or even sitting up paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, pulmonary congestion, curly B lines on chest radiograph, pulmonary vascular congestion and edema, and bilateral pleural effusions. For right ventricular failure, look for peripheral edema, JVD, 
hepatomegaly, ascites, and underlying lung disease. Note, both ventricles are commonly affected, so a mixed pattern is commonly seen. Number 39, how is chronic CHF treated? Chronic CHF is treated on an outpatient basis with sodium restriction, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, diuretics, digoxin, and vasodilators. Number 40, how is acute CHF treated? Acute CHF is treated on an inpatient basis with oxygen, diuretics, and positive inotropes. Digoxin may be used if the patient is stable. Intravenous sympathomimetics such as dobutamine, dopamine, and amrinone are used for severe CHF. Number 41. What factors precipitate exacerbations in previously stable patients with CHF? The most common is noncompliance with diet or medications, but watch for myocardial infarction, severe hypertension, arrhythmias, infections and fever, pulmonary embolus, anemia, thyrotoxicosis, and myocarditis. Number 42. Define core pulmonale. With what clinical scenarios is it associated? Core pulmonale is right ventricular enlargement, hypertrophy, and right-sided heart failure due to primary lung disease. Common causes are chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and pulmonary embolus, which lead to pulmonary hypertension and then core pulmonale. In a young woman with no other medical history or risk factors, think of idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. Sleep apnea can also cause corpulmonale. Look for an obese snorer who is sleepy during the day. Patients with corpulmonale may have tachypnea, cyanosis, clubbing, parasternal heave, loud P2, and right-sided S4 in addition to the signs and symptoms of pulmonary disease. Treat with prostacyclins, parenteral epoprostenol, anti-endothelins, bosentan, phosphodiesterase-5 inhibitors, and calcium channel blockers while awaiting heart-lung transplantation. Number 43, what causes restrictive cardiomyopathy? How is it different from constrictive pericarditis? Restrictive cardiomyopathy involves a problem with the ventricles and is usually due to amyloidosis, sarcoidosis, hemochromatosis, or myocardial fibroelastosis. A ventricular biopsy is abnormal in all of these conditions. Constrictive pericarditis can be fixed by simply removing an abnormal pericardium. Look for a pericardial knock on exam, calcification of the pericardium, and a normal ventricular biopsy. Watch for an S4, which indicates stiff ventricles, and signs of right-sided heart failure, such as JVD and peripheral edema in both conditions. These two disorders are mentioned together because both can cause a restrictive type cardiac physiology but the treatments are quite different. Number 44. What is the most common kind of cardiomyopathy? What causes it? Dilated cardiomyopathy, which is most commonly caused by chronic coronary artery disease or ischemia, though by strict definition, this is not a true cardiomyopathy. For step two, watch for alcohol, myocarditis, or doxorubicin as the cause of dilated cardiomyopathy. Number 45, which cardiomyopathy is likely in a young person who passes out or dies while exercising or playing sports and has a family history of sudden death? 
hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which may be autosomal dominant. This idiopathic condition causes an asymmetric ventricular hypertrophy that reduces cardiac output, causing diastolic dysfunction. Look for a systolic ejection murmur along the left sternal border, similar to aortic stenosis, but that increases with standing or with a valsalva maneuver. These maneuvers decrease the volume of blood in the left ventricle. Treat with beta blockers or disopyramide to allow the ventricle more time to fill. Competitive sports should be avoided. Positive inotropes, such as digoxin, diuretics, and vasodilators are contraindicated because they worsen the condition. Number 46. What EKG abnormalities do I need to know about for step two? How are they treated? We're going to talk about each of these. The figures for them for each are outlined in the book. Always check for electrolyte disturbances as a cause for any arrhythmia. For atrial fibrillation, in symptomatic patients, first slow the ventricular rate with beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, or digoxin. If acute, with an onset of less than 24 hours, cardiovert with amiodarone, procainamide, or DC cardioversion. If the atrial fibrillation is chronic, first anticoagulate, then cardiovert. If this approach fails or atrial fibrillation recurs, leave the patient on rate control medications and warfarin. For atrial flutter, treat like atrial fibrillation. You may try to stop the arrhythmia with vagal maneuvers such as carotid massage. For heart block, first degree, no treatment, but avoid beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, both of which slow conduction. For second degree heart block, for Mobitz type 1, use a pacemaker or atropine only in symptomatic patients. Use a pacemaker in all patients with Mobitz type 2. For third-degree heart block, use a pacemaker. For Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, use procainamide or quinidine. Avoid digoxin and verapamil. For ventricular tachycardia, if it's pulseless, treat with immediate defibrillation, followed by epinephrine, vasopressin, amiodarone, or lidocaine. If a pulse is present, treat with amiodarone and synchronized cardioversion. For ventricular fibrillation, Treat with immediate defibrillation followed by epinephrine, vasopressin, amiodarone, or lidocaine. For PVCs, these are usually not treated. If they're severe and symptomatic, consider beta blockers or amiodarone. For sinus bradycardia, this is usually not treated. Use atropine or pacing if it's severe and symptomatic, such as after a heart attack. Avoid beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and other conduction-slowing medications. For sinus tachycardia, there is usually no treatment. Correct the underlying cause. Use beta blocker or calcium channel blocker if the patient is symptomatic. Number 47. What endocrine disease is suggested when a patient presents with sinus tachycardia or atrial fibrillation? Hyperthyroidism. Check the level of TSH as a screening test. Number 48. Which patients with atrial fibrillation should receive anticoagulation? The CHADS-2-VASC score is used to estimate the risk of stroke in patients with non-rheumatic atrial fibrillation. The score is used to determine whether the patient should be treated with anticoagulation, such as warfarin or dabigatran, or with aspirin. The points in the table below are added to determine the CHADS-2-VASC score. C is for congestive heart failure and is assigned one point.
H is for hypertension, a blood pressure consistently over 140, over 90, or treated hypertension on medication, and is assigned one point. A is for age greater than 75 years, and is assigned two points. D is for diabetes mellitus, and is assigned one point. S2 is for prior stroke or transient ischemic attack, and is assigned two points. V is for vascular disease, and is assigned one point. A is for age 65 to 74 years and is assigned one point. And the SC is for female sex, which confers a higher risk and is assigned one point. A score of zero is low risk for stroke and no anticoagulant therapy is recommended. A score of one is moderate risk. Oral anticoagulation therapy should be considered. A score of two or greater is high risk. Oral anticoagulant therapy is recommended unless contraindicated, such as with a significant fall risk or previous significant bleeding. Number 49. How does Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome classically present? A child becomes dizzy or dyspneic and passes out after playing and then recovers and has no other symptoms. The cause is a transient arrhythmia via the accessory pathway. EKG shows the infamous delta wave. The treatment of choice for these patients is radiofrequency catheter ablation of the pathway. Number 50. What do you need to know about the common congenital heart defects? Patent ductus arteriosus. A constant machine-like murmur in the left upper sternal border is present, as well as dyspnea and possible CHF. Closed with endomethacin or surgery if endomethacin fails. Keep the ductus open with prostaglandin E1. This is associated with congenital rubella and high altitudes. Ventricular septal defect, or VSD. This is the most common congenital heart defect. It is characterized by a holosystolic murmur next to the sternum. Most cases resolve on their own. Watch for fetal alcohol, torch, or Down syndrome. Atrial septal defect. It's often asymptomatic until adulthood. It is characterized by a fixed split S2 and palpitations. Most defects do not require correction unless they are very large. Tetralogy of Fallot is the most common cyanotic congenital heart defect. It is characterized by four anomalies, pulmonary stenosis, right ventricular hypertrophy, an overriding aorta, and ventricular septal defect. Look for tet spells which is squatting after exertion. Coarctation of the aorta. Look for upper extremity hypertension only or radiofemoral delay. A systolic murmur is heard over the mid-upper back. There's rib notching on radiograph and it's associated with Turner syndrome. Number 51. Name the non-cyanotic congenital heart defects. Non-cyanotic heart defects result in left-to-right shunts in which oxygenated blood from the lungs is shunted back into the pulmonary circulation, resulting in a pink baby. These non-cyanotic heart conditions can be remembered by the three Ds, VSD, ASD, and PDA. Number 52, name the cyanotic congenital heart defects. Cyanotic heart disease results in right-to-left shunts in which deoxygenated blood is shunted into the systemic circulation, resulting in a blue baby. These cyanotic heart conditions can be remembered by the mnemonic 12345. 
Truncus arteriosus, there is just one common vessel leaving the ventricles. Transposition of the great vessels, the two great vessels, the aorta and pulmonary artery, are transposed. Tricuspid atresia, three for tricuspid. Tetralogy of Fallot, four in tetralogy. And total anomalous pulmonary venous return. There are five words in total anomalous pulmonary venous return. Number 53, what is important to remember about tachycardia in children? Heart rates over 100 beats per minute may be normal in a child, as may respiratory rates greater than 20 respirations per minute. Number 54, in the fetal circulation, where is the highest and lowest oxygen content? The highest oxygen content in the fetal circulation is in the umbilical vein, the blood coming from the mother, and the lowest is in the umbilical arteries. Also remember that oxygen content is higher in blood going to the upper extremities than in blood going to the lower extremities. Number 55. What changes occur in the circulation as an infant goes from intrauterine to extrauterine life? The first breaths inflate the lungs and cause decreased pulmonary vascular resistance, which increases blood flow to the pulmonary arteries. This, and the clamping of the cord, increase left-sided heart pressures, causing functional closure of the foramen ovale. Increased oxygen concentration shuts off prostaglandin production in the ductus arteriosus, causing gradual closure. That's the end of the cardiology chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out.